You are listening to a podcast from Providence Reformed Baptist Church. If you would like to listen to more of our sermons, please visit our website at providencewi.org. Let us turn to the Gospel of John. We're going to begin reading. Our text today is John 17, 1 through 5. We will actually begin reading at uh, John 16, 31 to give us to flow into the moment that this prayer begins. Uh, John 16, 31. Jesus answered them, Do you now believe? Behold, an hour is coming and has already come for you to be scattered, each to his own home and to leave me alone. And yet I am not alone because the Father is with me. These things I have spoken to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you have tribulation, but take courage. I have overcome the world. These things Jesus spoke and lifting up his eyes to heaven, he said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son that the son may glorify you. Even as you gave him authority over all mankind, that to all whom you have given him, he may give eternal life. And this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work which you gave me to do. And now, glorify me together with you, Father, with the glory which I had with you before the world was. Let us pray. Our Father, we are we are always the uh, recipients, uh, not the originators. And and this word reminds us um, of just what a great salvation we have. It reminds us of the work that you at that point were about to do through Jesus and it reminds us of the results of that work. Lord, please give us ears to be able to hear that which is points to that which is unmeasurable, that which is beyond profundity, that which is too glorious for us to understand. But yet, Lord, you do point us towards it. And you do give us ears to hear. And so help us to to look at what you did through your Son in sending him. And to know you truly, even though we cannot understand all that you do. So we just pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. How many of you have ever perhaps walked into, walked past the door, perhaps going down the hallway, and heard 
someone, perhaps a loved one, perhaps a parent or a, uh, a grandmother or someone else praying for others, maybe even praying for you. They didn't know that you were hearing them. It's a very moving and a humbling experience to have someone pray for you. And even, even those who do not believe are often moved deeply when someone will pray for them. And I've had that experience of praying for someone. I said, could I pray for you? I knew they weren't. They weren't a follower of Christ, and yet they are moved by that. Of course, that doesn't, my praying for them does not, uh, doesn't save them or anything like that. But uh, it is a humbling thing, and it's very moving to have someone pray for you. And so, how much more so when it is the very Son of God himself who is praying as we look at this text, we, are, we have just come at the end of John 16. We've just come to the time when Jesus is face to face with his disciples. He's looking at them. They're looking at him. He's seeing what's in their minds. He's reading their body language. He hears their verbal questions. And now that has come to an end. These things Jesus spoke, what things? The things that we just finished uh, looking at in John 14 through 16. Those things he spoke. And now he's not looking at them anymore. And lifting his eyes to heaven, he spoke. Same voice. Now he's directed to the Father. And the disciples are hearing. Moments later, my assumption, although the Bible doesn't say it here, is that perhaps by this time they are in the garden or maybe close to it. A few moments later, he will take three disciples with him and he will go off to a lonely place and there he will pray Father, if it be possible, let this cup be removed from me, yet not your will, not my will, but thine be done. But in this prayer, he's going to ask that God will do that terrible and awful work through him. Not in so many words, but we're going to see that that is what he will be asking. And yet he will be asking it with the end in view. What is going to happen as a result of his suffering which he is soon to endure. And so he's lifted his eyes to heaven. The disciples are present. They're hearing this. But he's speaking to the Father. And he says, Father, the hour has come. Father. God did not create the human family and then decide that would be a nice analogy for his name. In fact, as we're going to see, God has always been Father. And our human family was based on God's idea of what it is to be Father. And so Jesus speaks to his Father. And he says, Father, the hour has come. What hour? 
Well, it wasn't a literal hour. It, it was going to take quite a bit more than an hour. It was going to be more than 60 minutes, but certainly uh, the time had come. The idea of the moment, hour in the sense of an opportune moment, hour in the sense of a period of time in which a particular event that has its own um, integrity, that has its own unity, in that hour, which in reality was going to be uh, closer to uh, perhaps uh, 18 or 20 hours, within that hour, that moment, something was going to happen. The hour has come. And he had alluded to that time in, in John chapter 12. Just look at that very quickly. John chapter 12, verse uh, 27, uh, where Jesus says, my soul has become troubled, and what shall I say? Father, again, that word Father, Father, save me from this hour, but for this purpose, I came to this hour. Father, glorify your name. And as we look at the content of this hour, what was this hour, this time to consist of? We look a little further in John 12, and we see in verse 31, judgment is upon the world. Now the ruler of this world shall be cast out, and I, if I be lifted up from the earth, will draw all men to myself. In this hour, in this moment, the Father was to glorify his name. The Son would be lifted up on a cross. God would judge the world system and its leader, Satan. In this complex of events, God was going to glorify his name. The Son would be lifted up and also glorified. He would die as a sacrifice for sin and God would judge the sinful world system. And so in that light, that hour has come and Jesus is praying this prayer inspired by the moment and directed to the preparation for the moment and directed to the understanding of that moment which was about to happen. And so we, we come now to his statement, glorify, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son that the Son may glorify you. That's the first time when he makes the request, glorify your Son. And we will see it again in, in uh, verse 5. Jesus says, glorify me together with you. Twice he, he, he asks the Father to, to glorify him. But to understand this, I just want to give us a, a bit of a background uh, on the doctrine of the Trinity. Not that you haven't heard of it, and not that you haven't been taught about the Trinity, but merely because uh, the Trinity is a, is a big doctrine. It, it covers a lot of territory, and, and of course, we're not going to do all of that. But I want to especially focus on just uh, one aspect of the doctrine of the Trinity, uh, which is very germane to this text. In fact, John chapter 17 is one of the key texts that, that um, helps us to, gives content to our doctrine of the Trinity. When we say we believe in the Trinity, John 17 is one of the key texts in that doctrine. And so uh, in John 17, uh, the, the doctrine of the Trinity has reference to creation, it has reference to uh, providence, and many other things. But in this particular text, we're looking at the doctrine of the Trinity in relation uh, to the relationship of the Father and the Son and how we are included in that relationship. And I'm just going to read from a little book um, called, De it's deceptively small. You think, oh, this looks like, a, this, this looks like you know, a, one of them lightweight paperbacks that you could find um, 
at a gas station stand, you know, you get those books that some of them have been there for about 30 years and they're kind of all yellow and torn around the covers and you think, well, they should either sell it or throw it out. It looks like one of those, but it is much more profound than that. And um, I'm just going to read a short excerpt from it, talking about the relationship of father, son, and spirit. And he says, well, let us go back to the beginning and to the father. Before creation, before all things, the Father was loving and begetting his Son. And we'll be looking at some verses about that in a moment. For eternity, that was what the Father was doing. He did not become Father at some point. Rather, his very identity is to be the one who begets the Son. That is who he is. Thus, it is not as if the Father and the Son bumped into each other at some point and found to their surprise how remarkably well they got on. The Father is who he is by virtue of his relationship with the Son. Think again of the image of the fountain. A fountain is not a fountain if it does not pour forth water. Just so the Father would not be the Father without his Son, whom he loves through the Spirit. And the Son would not be the Son without his Father. He has his very being from the Father. And so we see that the Father, Son, and Spirit, while distinct persons, are absolutely inseparable from each other. Not confused, but undividable. They are who they are together. They always are together, and thus they always work together. This means that the Father is not more God than the Son or the Spirit, as if he had once existed or could exist without them. His very identity and being is about giving out his own fullness to the Son. He is inseparable from him. It also means that there is no God behind and before Father, Son, and Spirit. That actually can be the problem with talk about God. It can all too easily lead us to imagine that there is some stuff or some person called God out of which the Father, Son, and Spirit then emerge as if one could pray to this God or if anyone had ever met or had dealings with such a thing. And I'm just going to kind of underline that last part. I think as we talk, speak of the Trinity, that's one of the hardest things that, that we have to wrestle with and it's something that I've wrestled with. Uh, sometimes we get this idea of a sort of God stuff, a kind of, um, a kind of a substance, uh, some kind of an ether out of which the Spirit and the Father and uh, the Son emerge. But in reality, the scripture starts with the Father, but we find as, as God's revelation progresses, as we move through the Old Testament and into the New Testament, we find that he has always existed as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And so there is a, a permanent relationship which has, always, uh, which has always been enjoyed between the Father and the Son in the presence of the Spirit. So one of the problems that, uh, that happens, uh, and it happens partly because of... Um, what I would call the philosopher's God, or uh, when we take ideas of God from other religions, or we just take a generic concept of God, and we think of love as being something that gets added on. You know, and we think of love as an emotion, something that, or, or as a decision we make, a conscious decision, and that's all very good and well as human beings. There's, there's times when we don't love, and we need to be reminded to love. Um, and love is also a mood. It has emotional components to it. Yet, that would not be accurate to say of God. It is not that God is holy and he's all-powerful, and then at some point he decided to love. No, 
Uh, God is love. And that's why John in, in uh, 1 John says God is love. Why? Because God has always been, as Trinity, a God who loves. There's always been love uh, between the persons of the Trinity. And once you understand who God is, you can't say uh, that God is not love. So the love and the glory giving that we're going to see in John 17 is eternal. It's from before the foundation of the world and it will continue uh, forever. So because God is loving, he doesn't love to get something else. Uh, God saves, God transforms our lives, uh, God um, does these things, but his love isn't a means to get something else. That is, his love, he doesn't love to demonstrate that he's sovereign. He is sovereign, but he doesn't love to demonstrate that. He already, he loved from eternity past. He doesn't even love us so that he can show that he loves us. He already did, whether we realize it or not. So his love isn't a means to do something else. He loves because it is his nature to do so. And the stupendous thing that we will see in this prayer and in the coming weeks is that God, by means of the sacrifice of his son, is going to include sinful men like myself and the rest of us. He's going to include sinful men in the love and glory which Father, Son, and Spirit have eternally enjoyed together. And so now we'll move on to uh, the verses uh, 2 and 3. And we see here, uh, the glorifying of the Son um, has reference in verse 2 and 3 to the authority that God gave Jesus over all mankind, that to all whom you have given him, he may give eternal life. Uh, remember uh, what Jesus said in, in John 6, uh, 37. He said, All that the Father gives me shall come to me, and the one who comes to me I will certainly not cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that of all that he has given me I lose nothing, but raise it up on the last day. For it is the will of my Father that everyone who beholds the Son and believes in him may have eternal life, and I myself will raise him up on the last day. And the authority that the Father had given the Son over all mankind, as it says here, was that, those, that, that to those whom God had given him, he would give eternal life. We see here the sovereignty and the election of God, but that his sovereignty and election is communicated to man through Jesus Christ. Um, it says, to all who would believe. When we... Um, I believe in the sovereignty of God and I believe in predestination. But when the gospel is preached, what is being preached, the salvation of God is being extended in the person of his son. Unbelievers are not asked first to believe in election. They are called to believe in the one whom God has ordained as the means of salvation. And so later on we come to realize the greatness of God's grace. But when salvation is held out, the greatness of his love in Jesus Christ and the judgment of sin, of sinful, of, of our sin in him, is that, that's held out. It's, it's let out. Take hold of Jesus. He is the one. So, 
he has this authority to give uh, eternal life to those that believe in his name. And what does that life consist of? Verse 3, this is eternal life that they may know you, the only true God in Jesus Christ, whom you sent. Eternal life. What is eternal life? Is that just a continuation of what for some of us is a miserable existence? Or is it just a continuation of, you know, things are going pretty good, so I guess I, I could put up with that if I had to do that forever, or it's better than the alternative. Um, actually, the eternal life that he's speaking of here is continue, it, it's continued from this life because if we are in Christ, we will be the ones that continue to enjoy the eternal life. Yeah, we have our, we are, will be the same persons, yes. But the eternal life that he is speaking of, we'll, we, as we see, uh, we're going to see in just a moment, is a life that goes far beyond simply the continuation, even the very best life that anybody has ever lived on earth. Uh, the eternal life that he is speaking of goes far, far beyond that. Because that life consists in knowing the Father and the Son that was sent. More about that in a moment. Verse 4, I glorified you on the earth, having accomplished the work which you have given me to do. Well, what the son was sent and he did some work. Well, what was the work he did? We could, do a, uh, we could look through all through John and we could see the things that he's done. But let's just stick to the prayer, okay? We'll stick to the prayer and we'll see some of the things that he's already done. And uh, this will, all this, the, the, the entirety of the prayer we're going to go over in, in, in much more depth. But let's just kind of give an overview here. What the son was sent, he was sent with a work to do. He says he's done the work. Okay, so what has he done? Uh, verse 6, I manifested your name to the men whom you gave me. Uh, verse 26, I have made your name known to them. He made the name of God, of, of, of the Father, known to them. He communicated the name of the Father. Uh, verses 12 through 16, While I was with them, I was keeping them in your name which you have given me. And I guarded them, and not one of them perished, but the son of perdition. Verse 14, I have given them your word, and the world has hated them, because they are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. I do not ask you to take them out of the world, but to keep them from the evil one. He has kept them in the Father's name. Verse, so he is He's, he's shown the name of the Father. He's kept them. He's, he's guarded them. He's protected them. And then in verse 17 through 19, he says, Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. And as you sent me into the world, I also have sent them into the world. And for their sakes, I sanctify myself that they also may be sanctified in truth. And here, here the sanctification is not a static sanctification. It's not it's not sitting still in a holy place and doing nothing. Here the sanctification refers setting them apart for a work of service, just as he set himself apart for a work of service. And so he says uh, in verse 18 that he is sending them into the world. So he has done that. Of course, we realize that this was going to continue, but it was something that he had uh, already begun to do. And then finally, uh, in verse 20, 
Uh, he says, I don't ask, that is his prayer, the prayer he's praying right at that moment, I don't ask on behalf of these alone, that is his disciples, but for those also who believe in me through their word. Remember, these disciples are being sent. They are communicating the same word that he has been communicating to them. So they are going to communicate the truth about God that they may all be one, even as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, that the world may believe that you sent me. Verse 22, And the glory which you have given me I have given to them, that they may be one, just as we are one. And so he has already, in some sense, started to make them one. Now we know that that will continue too. That will continue throughout eternity. But in some way, he has already sanctified, sent them, and that process of becoming one uh, in the Father and the Son has already begun. Again, the idea of oneness here is not the idea that we lose our personality. This is not, this is not uh, Hinduism uh, or some kind of New Age religion where when we die, um, we finally get rid of the, the terrible curse of being myself and we all just sort of vanish into this thing that this spirit, this nameless spirit that floats around forever and we lose our identity so there's no more pain, right? You lose your identity, you lose your will, you lose your desires and you have no more pain and so you're, you hit, you reach nirvana. But uh, that's not what he's talking about here. He's talking about we will remain the people that he's created us and yet we will enjoy him. So when we become one, it is not a, it's not a mystical oneness, it's a oneness in which we continue to be who we are but we are transformed and we enjoy the presence of the Father and the Son. And then finally in verse 5, he says, Glorify me together with you, Father, with the glory which I had with you before the world was. This is the second time he said, Father, glorify me. Now notice the first time he says, glorify me. And he's referring to his being lifted up, his crucifixion. He will be glorified as he demonstrates by his obedience to the Father uh, who he is. He will be glorified in his obedience to the Father. But now, in verse 5, he says, Glorify me together with the glory which I had with you before the world was. And certainly he was showing that glory on the cross. But this, uh, this also has a future reference. This is a reference uh, because remember, as he's been speaking in John uh, 14 through 16, he has mentioned several times and uh, in fact, he mentions throughout the Gospel of John at, di at different moments that, the, that, the, um, that Satan, that the enemy will be judged and that God will judge the enemy through the work that he is about to do. And of course, nobody understood that. They didn't, what are you going to do? And he, they didn't understand until after, uh, he had, uh, after he had been raised from the dead. But this work was a work in which our sins are forgiven, but it was also a work in which Satan would be judged. This whole world system, which is set up, uh, which has been uh, set up and, and dominated by interests and by, by things which, uh, which constantly uh, work against God's glory and constantly on rebellion against him, he was going to have that victory. And so he's, he's certainly looking to his crucifixion. But you notice that he is also referring to the glory which he had with the Father before the world was. Something that will be enjoyed not only before the world was created, but will be enjoyed uh, after the very end of time, after his return and after uh, the final judgment. So we have two glorifies here. The end result of this glory, the glory at which every knee shall bow, as it says in Philippians 2, will be that we will observe 
the love of the Father and Son, and we will enjoy their presence. Uh, just where does it say that? Uh, well, it's one of the places it says that is uh, in John in, in uh, verse 24. Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me be with me where I am in order that they may behold my glory which you have given me. For you loved me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, although the world has not known you, yet I have known you. And these have known that you did send me. And I have made my name no, your name known to them and will make it known that the love with which you loved me may be in them and I in them. There's a prophecy here that... Uh, there is going to be an eternal uh, presencing, an eternal uh, enjoyment of the, of the unity and the love which the Father and Son have always enjoyed. We will observe that, and yet we will also participate in it. One of the most beautiful texts in all of Scripture gives us uh, an image of that. Uh, it's hard to capture anything so... Um, Beyond, it's beyond our capacity to, to take it in in its fullness. But there is a, a beautiful image in the book of Revelation, in Revelation chapter 5, where we see our enjoying of the, the glory of the Father and the Son, but in which we participate in, a, in, in, that, in that glory. Not that we take it upon ourselves, but in which it is shared with us. So uh, Revelation 5, uh, let's just read from verses 9 through 13. And, and, and please read with the eyes of your imagination. Um, don't just let the words um, go around you. Try to imagine the scene. And, and the scene here is, is that of a throne um, standing on a sea of glass. Uh, the being on the throne is surrounded by angels, um, by 24 elders, uh, by creatures, uh, celestial, celestial beings. And but we'll skip over uh, four and the first part of five, but we'll just start at chapter nine. And they sang a new song saying, worthy are you to take the book and to break its seals for you were slain and did purchase for God with your blood men from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. And you have made them to be a kingdom and priests to our God and they will reign upon the earth. And I looked and I heard the voice of many angels around the throne and the living creatures and the elders. And the number of them was myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb that was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And every created thing which is in heaven and on the earth and under the earth and on the sea and all things in them I heard saying to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb, be blessing and honor and glory and dominion forever and ever. Remember that in this prayer in verse 3, Jesus says uh, that they may see you, the only true God, and he whom you have sent. And he says that they may be one with us, that they may behold the glory that I had with you before the creation of the world. And so at that moment in, in Revelation, God is beheld, he is seen, he is enjoyed. The love and the, the glory that the Father gives to the Son is reflected as the Son gives back love and glory to the Father. 
and they do it in the presence of the Spirit. And so the true Father is seen, but at the same time, in this, in this uh, hymn, in, in Revelation 5, is the reminder of the sent Son. And so this multitude that is filled with a joy so unbelievable that they can shed no tears, all tears will be wiped away. And yet what are we singing about? We're singing about the most awful moment in the history of humankind in which man showed exactly what he was made out of, crucifying the Son of God in a, in a, in a bloody and an awful sacrifice. And yet the reminder of that will not lead to grief because it will be a reminder of the, of, the, of the extent of the obedience of the Son, of the way the Son honored the Father. And it will be the cause not of grief but of rejoicing and of an eternal celebration. And so Jesus, as he prays in John 17, is alluding to that, the enjoyment of a grace that we did not deserve, that we could not have earned, that we could not have imagined. And so as we, as we come uh, to a conclusion, let's not shrink back from three different things. One, um, one note that is sounded in this prayer in verses one through five in Jesus' prayer is that we may know the true God and Father through the one that he has sent. So let's always stick to Jesus to show us who the Father is. Not slip back to the world's ideas about gods or a God or what the philosophers say or to our own imagination or there's no generic God that comes in a little white bottle and is on the shelves of the pharmacy is cheaper than the brand names. There's no generic God that comes in flavors of Christian and Muslim and Hindu and New Age. There's no generic God. We have the one and true God, the Father, revealed in the Son. And so let's take hold of him through his word. And the second note I want to, I think we need to sound from this, this prayer, verses one through five, is that the Father from, from eternity past, before the creation of the world, has willed to give us eternal life in his Son. It wasn't an afterthought. And his election is not based on him being playing games, rolling dice. It is based on a, on, on, on a God who has revealed himself to be loving from eternity past and who continues to be loving and always will be because he will always be the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The gospel comes to us in scripture as whosoever will, come to the waters of life, repent and believe. It's, it, the gospel is stated in many ways in the scripture, but it's only later that we come to realize that God was working in us before we came to the point of decision. And so Jesus in these verses says, you have given them to me and I have kept them in your name. We are safe in him. We are secure in Jesus. And then the final note. Eternal life is not the continuation of whatever we have now. Or I should say not merely the continuation. Eternal life is to experience not merely eternal in the sense of how long it is, but eternal in the sense of the quality of the life the love, the glory 
which was always shared by the Father and the Son. That is eternal. It has always been and it will always be. And so God in the gospel includes us in that. And that is a great promise and a hope that Jesus was praying for them. And if Jesus prayed it, it will be realized. It will not, his word will not fail. His prayer will not go unanswered. We can cling to that. If you have grown up in a family or in a situation where you didn't receive a lot of love, or maybe you're going through a situation like that now. Or if you know you're a long ways from God and you know you, you're never going to be good enough to get to him. Or if you've been brought up in a religion that says you have to earn God's favor, be good enough. You can't do that. But to think of a God who from the very beginning, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, had you in mind, and had you in mind precisely out of love, is a very great thing. And it's a security that, that stands with us, whether we're ill, whether we're uh, rich or poor, uh, whether we're alone or surrounded by friends, whether we're healthy are facing death, whether we are happily integrated in our society or persecuted, whether we are understand everything or whether we're filled with doubts, this is the God who has reached out to us through Jesus Christ. And in, and in that gospel, we have hope because God has given, the Father gave us to him and he will keep us and protect us. So let's take hope in Jesus' prayer.